during Epiphany at Kenilworth Union Church, uh, Christine and Katie and I are preaching this sermon series called The Impossible Possibility for an Impossible Time. It was the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr who called Jesus the impossible possibility. And it seems in this time when a, the pandemic is nearing its second anniversary, we have racial unrest in a divided country that Christ-like virtues have never been more needed than now. So we're following the life of Christ in his early ministry. Today, Luke 4, Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. And he began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the rabbi handed him a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, release to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Then he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote the proverb, Physician, heal thyself. And you will say, Do here in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. When the congregation heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of a hill that they might throw him off. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On a preaching tour of Galilean synagogues, as you just heard, Jesus is vastly popular. The crowds he draws to the synagogues every Sabbath are bigger than Joel Osteen's, and it's going very well. So Jesus figures he might as well wander over to his hometown of Nazareth and preach to his family and friends. And from the bima, he looks out over the whole congregation and he recognizes every single face in that crowd. The third grade Sunday school teacher who taught him to memorize Psalm 23 is there. The sixth grade grammar teacher who taught him to parse Hebrew verbs and decline Aramaic nouns is there. The little league coach who taught him to hit a curveball when he was 12 years old is there or whatever passed for baseball in first century Palestine. Mother Mary must have been there, yes? And his brothers and sisters. And so the rabbi hands Jesus a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus unrolls it and finds the place he's looking for. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, release to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he wraps up this little sermon by saying, Today, right now, right here, this prophecy is being fulfilled in your hearing. Then he sits down. 
to the amazement of all. Now, Jesus' little sermon in his hometown didn't have the desired result. All it did is make his family and friends mad as hell, so mad that they try to throw him off a cliff, which doesn't mean that it wasn't a great sermon, yes? In the structure of Luke's gospel, Jesus' hometown sermon at Nazareth is the place where he sets the agenda for his entire life and ministry. This is the place where he condenses his vast intention to its distilled essence. He says, The Spirit of the Lord has commanded me to bring four things. Preach good news to the poor, release to the prisoner, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed. Now exactly half of those four things have to do with freedom, liberty, release, and equality. Release to the prisoner, liberty for the oppressed, along with good news for the poor, sight for the blind. Now, why is freedom so integral to Jesus' life and mission? Isn't it because when you offer your neighbor freedom and equality, space to live her life the way she wants to live it in her own unique way, when you weight her opinion as equal to your own, isn't that the highest compliment you can pay her? Democracy, you see, has its roots in Judeo-Christian theology. Democracy wants to say, alongside the Hebrew Bible, that we are all stamped with the very image of the Almighty. We are all God's children. We're all equal. Authoritarians, and there's a plague of authoritarianism around the globe just now, from Eastern Europe to Russia, to China, to Cambodia. Authoritarians want to say exactly the opposite. What they want to say is, you are not smart enough to make these apocal decisions on behalf of all of us, so I will make your decisions for you. Your voice does not count. Your opinion is unworthy. Despots treat their subjects like a smothering mother cares for her helpless infant. And so that's why freedom is integral to Jesus' mission. That's what he came here to bring. And then, 1,900 years later, Martin Luther King Jr. picks up Jesus' torch of liberty. He even sounds like Jesus. He says, the word of God is upon me, set like a fire in my bones, and when God's on me, i got to say it. In 1955, he becomes the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association and organizes the bus boycott after that insolent Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on the bus. He's only 36 years old. He has no right to ascend to that lofty position, president of the association. He's only been in Montgomery for about a year. He doesn't know anything about Montgomery. He's from Atlanta. The only reason he got the job is because nobody else wanted it. And so it's from the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church that Dr. King launches his campaign of liberté, égalité, fraternité. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which was built on the site of one of the city's former slave pens. How ironic and yet how wonderful is that? Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is one block from the uh, Alabama State Capitol. 
where in 1861 Jefferson Davis was sworn in as president of the Confederacy, and where later George Wallace gave his gubernatorial inaugural address, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, 1963. How wonderful and yet ironic is that? When Dr. King became pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in 1954, he introduced a new requirement for membership. Before you could join Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, you had to register to vote. What do you think about that? Do you see why? It's because the vote means good news for the poor, release to the prisoner, liberty for the oppressed. We lost a prominent civil rights pioneer around the turn of the year. When Sidney Potier was a teenager in Florida, two policemen stopped him for walking in a white neighborhood and pressed a pistol to his forehead and joked for 10 minutes about whether they should shoot him in the right eye or the left. But then, 20 years later, along comes in the heat of the night, Virgil Tibbs, and when a Mississippi police chief makes fun of his sissy odd name Virgil and asks him what he's called up north, he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs. In that film, a plantation owner will slap Mr. Tibbs for not knowing his place, and Mr. Tibbs reflexively slaps him back, but that wasn't in the script. The script called for him to look disdainfully at the plantation owner and walk away. It was Cindy Potier himself who decided that Mr. Tibbs would not walk away. The arc of the moral universe is long, Dr. King kept reminding us. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. One last thing, and then I'll quit. I hope you are happy with the result of the football game on Monday night. Many of us Big Ten fans are in awe of the Southeastern Conference just now. I love Jim Harbaugh. I love Pat Fitzgerald. I am in awe of Nick Saban. Now, a lot of us are wondering why they even play the national championship game why don't they just do the SEC finals and call it a day? The national championship seems redundant. You may have noticed that both Alabama and Georgia have a couple of black football players. Not many, just one or two. It's remarkable how black the Southeastern Conference is when you stop to consider that at uh, Louisiana State University, for instance, the first black football player didn't appear till 1972. 1972. But that revolution in the racial composition of the athletes in the SEC actually began 20 years before the first black football player appeared at LSU. It was when the first black undergraduate matriculated at Louisiana State University. His name was A.P. Thoreau, Jr., 
His dorm was in a barracks-like building in the shadow of Tiger Stadium. His dorm room was built for three people, but he lived alone because no one would share quarters with him. When he entered the shower, everyone else left. Students in adjacent rooms would take turns banging on the walls so that he couldn't sleep. Some of his professors refused to touch his papers. The only people who would talk to him were the maids, groundkeepers, and waiters because they were all black. You probably know that LSU has a real live Bengal tiger as a mascot. They call him Mike the Tiger. The current tiger is Mike the Seventh. Mike the Tiger occupies the most opulent tiger pen in the world. It is 19,000 square feet. It costs $3.7 million to build. It has trees, a stream, a waterfall, a huge mountain of rocks, and an Italian bell tower built to mimic the architectural motif of the rest of the campus. Back in 1953, Mike's domicile was more modest, but even back then he had a swimming pool. So A.P. Thoreau in 1953 lived across the street from Mike the Tiger in the shadow of Tiger Stadium. And every morning, A.P. would go over to talk to Mike. Mike, what are we going to do? You're in prison. I'm in prison. How are we going to get out of here? Every day. And then one day this pickup truck rolls up in front of A.P. and Mike the Tiger while they're talking together. And A.P. wonders to himself, I hope this pickup doesn't have a rifle rack in the rear window. But a black man in overalls comes out of the pickup and walks over to A.P. and says, Are you A.P. Turow? And A.P. says, I am. Then the man walks back to his truck to ret retrieve his seven-year-old son and brings the son over to meet A.P. And he says, I wanted him to meet you because I needed him to know that this was possible because of you. And after he regains his composure, A.P. says, Oh man, you just ruined my day. I'm trying to get out of here, and now you've made me a symbol of racial integration. Well, A.P. Thoreau didn't have to worry about surviving at Louisiana State for long. He only lasted eight weeks because the university sued to prevent his matriculation, and they won, and they expelled him. He finished his college degree at another university and then spent the next 38 years in education in White Plains, New York, but... In 2011, 10 years ago, 58 years after he was expelled, Louisiana State University offered Alexander Pierre Turo Jr. an honorary doctorate. So now it's Dr. Turo. We're sorry, AP. We were wrong, said the university. Please forgive us. And he did. Mike, I'm in jail. You're in jail. 
how are we going to get out of here? Sometimes it takes a long time, but Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor, release to the prisoner, and liberty to the oppressed. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, free at last.